You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. So rule number one, don't talk about Mithras. Definitely. Rule number two, drink the emperor's pee. Obviously. There is a new power in Rome, a new boy emperor, Nero, and the stories you have heard about him, about his vanity, his cruelty, and his hubris, have made you fear for your land and your people. War has dogged your country. Armenia stands between Rome and Parthia, and the conflict between these empires has deposed you once. You know that your power, your rule, relies upon Nero's fickle whims. You need his protection. You need his support to keep your kingdom, and you have heard the stories, the ones about him burning people alive as torches. You have heard of other things, darker things, that the boy has done to those who displease him. The competition for the emperor's favor is intense. Everyone wants his attention. If you wait even another day, the emperor's whims could change, or worse, someone else could get to Nero first declare their interest in your land, and then what will happen to your people? But you have a secret weapon, one thing you alone can offer him. The emperor's fascination with mystery cults is legendary. It has reached your court far off in Armenia, far off in the secret caverns of Mithras. It has reached you. Your god demands complete devotion and complete secrecy. In his sacred caverns, he has shown you the mysteries of the universe, made you a soldier in the cosmic battle between good and evil that rages unseen all around us. To reveal the secrets of Mithras would be a sacrilege. To reveal them to this boy, this most undeserving of initiates, would be the greatest sacrilege of all. But Nero cannot resist a mystery cult, especially not one prostrate at his feet, a legion of worshippers ready to call him God. And what harm would it do Mithras in the end? Mithras is eternal, and in your kingdom, his worship can continue unchallenged and unchanged, just as long as the boy emperor protects your kingdom and leaves you alone. You have weighed out the secrets of the universe against the safety of your people. 
your family, and friends, and against your better judgment, you have decided there is no other way. So you approach the Emperor Nero, the boy king who lights his enemies on fire. You see his eyes light up when you begin your pitch to him. May Mithras forgive you. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So Merry Mithras, Jenny. Let's feast to the unconquered sun. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Mythmas. We are back with a (laughs) seasonal episode. Is it? Is it, though? Is it really? I hope the question sound in my voice made you all realize that I'm not at all sure this is a seasonal episode. Look, this isn't how we planned it. Mithras had a few surprises for us. This is the perfect seasonal episode for 2020. I absolutely adore writing our really creepy Halloween episodes and our seasonal ones that have, you know, winter holiday themed roots. Jen is, she's so into the seasonals. She loves decorating for Christmas. She loves Halloween. She loves all of the holidays so hard. I really do. Whenever you see like all the stuff on our Insta that's like the Christmas decorations and the Christmas trees and the Halloween stuff, it's always me. It's always Jen. I'm a little bit of a low-key holiday person. So when I sat down to tackle the story of Mithras, who I'd always heard was kind of like a proto-Jesus, maybe he was, they were the same. He was somehow related to Christmas. I was super excited. I was like, yeah, it'll be like Yule or Saturnalia with lots of cool stuff. Uh, It's not like Yule at all. And it's not like Saturnalia at all. (laughs) It has like some cool, interesting rituals to it, much like Yule or Saturnalia. That's about it. It's not seasonal in any way. Yeah. It is not seasonal in any way. And Mithras himself was kind of this international god of mystery. For someone who had a secret cult, He had the emphasis on secret. Jen was um, texting me late at night at 10 o'clock my time, which is, what is that, four in the morning your time, going, I can't figure out who Mithras is. I cannot figure him out. Don't judge me, guys. It's quarantine. Time is a flat circle. We've all done it. In the end, I think it's fair to say that you cracked him, Jen. I think so. Oh, I cracked him open like a pistachio nut. So we are so ready to tell you the story of this bull-slaughtering, mushroom-tripping, light-bringing, emperor-pee-drinking, hierarchy-maintaining, smurf-hat-wearing, cosmic warrior. So everybody, get out your beverage of choice. Here comes the story of Mithras and his top-secret cult. <laughs> if you, <laughs> Just so everyone knows, this, this may be an episode where we have Yule-level drunkenness. I don't know yet. We're still in the first three paragraphs, but I am drinking my beverage of choice out of our brand new Dionysus in the Mayonnaise cup. Is it White Rabbit? It is not a White Rabbit because I didn't have the materials for a White Rabbit. Also, she's just she's just not doing that again, folks. That's just not happening again. I know how much so many of you loved how drunk I got, but I was a little worried. <laughs> that was in the Yule episode. Jen hit the cauldron of White Rabbit super hard. Mm-hmm. If you know anything about Mithras, you might have the impression that Mithras was kind of a proto-Jesus. We were under that impression, which is why we decided to make Mithras our seasonal topic. And there are a lot of similarities. Mithras and Jesus became prominent in the Roman world at about the same time, around the first century AD. Like Jesus, Mithras's birthday was December 25th or thereabouts, somewhere around there. Like Jesus, Mithras was a light bringer, referred to as the light of the world by his followers, worshipped at a communal supper. There's a story about Mithras emerging from a rock or underground that bears a certain resemblance to Jesus rising from his tomb at Easter. Is it a coincidence? 
a lot of people in the recent and not so recent past think not. And also, we left off one key one. Allegedly, Mithras had a virgin birth, although that virgin was a rock, so we don't know exactly how that worked. I mean, how do you, how do you... Don't ask, don't ask. We're just gonna move on from there. We're moving on early because otherwise we will break our brains. So... This is the place where all of our research started from, but it's certainly not the place where we ended up. Because the reality is that there are far more differences and similarities between Mithras and Jesus. I actually go so far as to say if you're looking for an early pagan Jesus, you'd be better off looking at Dionysus than Mithras. Mithras wasn't a god of the common people. Unlike Jesus and Dionysus, he wasn't a god of the poor and the downtrodden. He wasn't a god of wine. He was the god of soldiers, and he was carried from the eastern provinces of Rome to the western front, and throughout the empire on the backs of soldiers and in the holds of pirate ships. And Mithras was all about rigid hierarchies. In fact, he was the god of emperors and kings. And you can even speculate that his cult was the secret glue that kept the Roman armies loyal to one man, the emperor. One man. (laughs) I love the way you say that. So let's start at the very beginning. So who was Mithras, Jen? Who the fuck was Mithras? I did all the research and I literally don't know. She still doesn't know. So there are a lot of theories about who Mithras was, but annoyingly, not a lot of facts. So everything that we say in this episode is going to be based on um, either writings by contemporary Christian sources who were living at around the same time that the Mithras cult was popular and who were not a member of the cult themselves. The cult was famously secretive and who had their own agenda in discrediting it because Mithras, I guess, was kind of a religious competition to Jesus. I don't even know if you want to say that, though, because they really didn't um, have the same demographics. They didn't have the same demographics, but they did rocket in popularity around the same time. And one religion has really, you know, remained as part of our zeitgeist today. And the other one, if it still is there, which is possible because it was super secret, we don't know much about. At the time they were both popular, the religion of Mithras was the establishment religion and Christianity was the underdog. So they were kind of jockeying for position. Absolutely. And the other thing that we have to rely on as well in our Mithras research is the archaeological findings in the Mithraea, which are these underground tombs where Mithras was worshipped. And a lot of what we see in this archaeology are the same repeating images that tell us it's Mithras. So it's exactly like if today you were to walk into a church and look at all the sort of stained glass windows and all the iconography in the church and all the artwork. If you didn't know the Christian stories, you would just be like, what is all of this mean, right, Jenny? It's like if you would walk into a church and look at all the stained glass and stuff and try to figure out what Christianity was without any other knowledge about Christianity. Sure. I mean, if you look at the big image of Jesus on the cross, you'd be like, okay, well, what what does that mean? And you would have to sort of come up with your own interpretation of a story based on what you're seeing. Yeah, so that's kind of what historians, archaeologists, and researchers are doing to piece together the things about the Mithraic religion that we are going to share with you. Yeah, and that's because this wasn't a documented, written down religion. Yeah, it was a secretive religion, and they really worked hard to keep it secret. They did not write things down. No, they didn't want us to know what they were up to. Right. So some historians believe that Mithras sprang into the Roman world as a Roman god, fully formed around the first century AD, just completely already set. He had no connections to any other culture, which, to be honest, I side-eye that. I'm sorry. 
I don't find that argument convincing. I am not a Mithras historian myself. I'm sure that there are reasons people believe that, but I side-eye it. We see mentions of Mithras in other places like Persia, ancient Iran, and India. And those who believe that Mithras was a fully Roman god dating to the first century AD also believe that the name Mithras was actually much older and given to this new god to lend it gravitas. Other historians, and frankly, us randos who read a lot and watch a lot of documentaries, believe that Mithras is a lot more ancient than that, and his roots were not in Rome. They were in Persia. Or possibly India. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So... The name Mithras is believed to come from Mithra, which is derived from the name of a god that predates the Zoroastrians. Zoroastrianism is one of the most ancient religions still practiced in the world today. It originated in ancient Iran and dates possibly all the way back to the second millennium BC. It's possibly over 3,000 years old. The theory is that Mithra was adopted by this religion back at the beginning, that he's even older than Zoroastrianism. Prior to the existence of Zoroastrianism in the region, the ancient Iranians worshipped a pantheon of gods that included Mithra, a god of contracts and oaths, a judicial figure and protector of truth, and the god of light and the harvest. His name, Mithra, comes from the Proto-Indo-Iranian me, to bind, and tra, causing to. So his name can be translated as that which causes binding. Mithra was impossible to deceive, completely infallible, eternally watchful, never slept. He was, in short, the perfect judge. Perhaps one of the earliest mentions of Mithra comes from the 1500s BC in a treaty between the Hittites, an ancient Anatolian people, and the Mitanni, a people from northern Syria. The treaty invokes Mithra as the god of oaths. In some Vedic texts from India, dating from around 1400 BC, Mithra is mentioned as friend and contract. They're connected because under this logic, friendship is born out of oaths, contracts, and legally enforceable promises. And, okay, that sounds a little formal, but it does kind of make sense in the ancient world. These were communities that did not have, you know, a police force and a fair and impartial judicial system a lot of the time. And in order to have a peaceful society, in order to get things done and be able to cooperate with people outside of your immediate family and friends that you don't know and whose motives you don't know, you have to be able to trust the people you're working with to do what they say that they're going to do and not screw you over. And the god who ensured that you could do that was Mithra. Mithra was the god everyone swore to to prove that they were on the up and up. He was the middleman or the middle god. Middle god? Middle god. I mean, he's not a man. He's not a middle manager. He's a god. He's the middle god who was going to make sure he was going to make sure both parties to an agreement, whether that was a business agreement or a political treaty or whatever, would fulfill their end of the bargain. Mithras was also the god of the sun, which again makes logical sense. If anything in this episode could be said to make logical sense. We're going to show you the thought progression. <laughs> the thought progression of what Mithras was worshipped for and why it makes total logical sense. <laughs> Loosely defined. <laughs> In his role as sun god, he shone light on everything that people did, including take oaths. 
He was the god who ensured that the sun returned, that it shone its light on the world, and that it drove away fear and bad feelings and made sure nobody was cheating on any agreements. And as a sun god, he saw everything, everything that went on under the sun. You couldn't hide from him. Mithras is watching you masturbate. He knows when you've been sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been masturbating. So So be be good good for goodness goodness sake. sake. (laughs) You can't force that many syllables in there. You know what? We tried to sing a nice little family-friendly Christmas rhyme and it failed. We failed. This might be the most Christmassy we get this episode. So you can see the logic for Mithras being a god of oaths and the sun god. But Mithras was also a god of war. If the other side broke their agreement and screwed you over, Mithras was your go-to god. He would walk beside you on the battlefield and help slay your enemies. This totally logically follows as well. He wasn't just going to oversee your contracts. He was going to enforce your contracts. Damn straight he was. Everyone got to the party. Everyone, like, shook hands. They all got bound by Mithras. His name literally means to bind. And if you broke that oath, what do you think was going to happen? Exactly. So here's some more logical progression here for you guys. So anyone in ancient society could make an oath. But the more high-ranking you were, the more your oaths mattered. The more they had a ripple effect that could affect thousands of people and vast swaths of territory. And the more likely it was that if those oaths were broken, you'd have to go to war. So it also makes a certain amount of sense that, from as far back as ancient Persia, Mithra was a god of kings, meaning he was associated with kingship and worshipped by kings. And later, in ancient Rome, he would become a god of emperors. Which is how, in ancient Rome, Mithras also became the god of soldiers and the military because the soldiers had to swear an oath to be loyal to the emperor. According to Britannica.com, quote, He was the god of mutual obligation between the king and his warriors, and hence, the god of war. He was also the god of justice, which was guaranteed by the king. Whenever people observed justice and contract, they venerated Mithra. In other words, Mithras and the king or emperor became kind of one in the same. And in worshipping the king or emperor, you worshipped Mithras. And this created a covenant. As long as you were loyal to your sovereign, then your sovereign would do right by you. But if one side broke the covenant, there would be Mithras to pay. Oh my god, I just... Oh, come on, you love it. It's the Gibbidians up in here with the dad jokes. <laughs> it's Christmas, you have to have a few dad jokes or Christmas cracker jokes, which are essentially dad jokes. I find like dad jokes are really punny jokes. Right, dad jokes are really just obvious punny science teachery jokes. Well, I think the thing about dad jokes is they're safe. You know, you're not really going to offend someone with a dad joke. That's sort of the point of it. There's a comfort to it, especially like if you're in mixed company, if you don't know people, you know, humor is very subjective. Like a dad joke might get a groan, but it might also get a laugh, but it's not going to offend anyone. Or it shouldn't. If you're offending someone, you're not telling a dad joke. Look at your life. Look at your choices. That's really true. Let's deconstruct the dad joke as a concept. Like, I love it. Anyway, the ancient Greeks never really got on the Mithras bus, and it's said that this is because of their running feud with the Persians, and we don't 100% know if that's true, but we do know that there weren't a lot of Mithraea in ancient Greece that we know of. Like, we didn't really find them there. But the ancient Romans really took to Mithras, starting around the time of the Emperor Nero. I can't imagine why Emperor Nero would like this god of emperors and kings. I feel like there are other emperors before Emperor Nero who would also like that. Well, here's the thing. Let's go through the emperors before Nero. And I did, in the research, it did make mention somewhere 
can't remember where I can't put my finger on it now, that Mithraism had sort of tried to come to the emperors before this, but Augustus shot them down. And Tiberius was kind of a weird recluse for a decent amount of his reign, and he did not adopt it as his religion. And Caligula was <laughs> did not last very long as emperor, and what he did last for was, as we've said many times, a shit show. So Nero ruled for a while, and he was famously into mystery cults, and this particular area of the world was having some problems that they needed sort of a big emperor daddy to come in and help out. We're getting to it right now. So according to Cassius Dio, the first emperor to be a member of the mystery cult of Mithras was Nero. The cult was brought to Nero's attention when, in 63 AD, the Armenian king Tiridates, a Zoroastrian, came to visit Nero and initiate him into the cult of Mithras. Nero had a thing for mystery cults. The more mysterious, the better. Essentially, if there was a secret club, Nero wanted in and he wanted to be president. Yeah, and Tiridates, seeing that the fortunes of his family and his country were tied up in the young emperor decided to take a gamble and induct Nero into the holy cult of Mithras, a cult that put loyalty to the king or emperor above all else. According to Cassius Dio, here's how Tiridates inducted Nero into this new secret cult. Quote, My lord, I have come to you who are my god. I have worshipped you as the sun. I shall be whatever you would order me to be because you are my destiny and fortune. And Nero was said to have replied, Quote, well hast thou done to come hither in person, that meeting me face to face thou might enjoy my grace. For what neither thy father left thee, nor my brothers gave and preserved for thee, thus do I grant thee. King of Armenia, I now declare thee, that both thou and they may understand that I have power to take away kingdoms and to bestow them. So, for an egomaniac like Nero, this was mother's milk. Yeah, my God. Yeah, can you imagine? He was fucking thrilled to be referred to as the sun. He's so getting off on this conversation right now. Yeah, Mithras is watching this and he's like, oh God. Not another masturbator. (laughs) And Nero was thrilled to be worshipped and to tell people that he could take away kingdoms or bestow them. So according to some sources, Nero burnt people alive to celebrate being made a magus in the cult of Mithras. And... This may not have been a regular practice in the worship of Mithras. I suspect it wasn't. But it was basically just a regular Tuesday for Nero. Yeah, I think this was just Nero's Tuesday. Pretty much. But Nero's tenure in the cult of Mithras wasn't a resounding success. Nero was a nightmare emperor. We talk about some of his most egregious offenses in our Patreon episode, Jackasses of the Arena, Nero. We also talk about him in the Ancient World Stark family and the Praetorian Guard episodes. Nero was cruel and capricious, and he broke his covenant with his people and his soldiers. It's not difficult to understand why in the end, everyone, even those inducted into a cult set out to worship him, turned against him. Because here's the thing about the cult of Mithras. It was a two-way street. Loyalty to the emperor meant that the emperor was loyal to you. The minute the emperor turned out to be a less than honorable ruler... Well, the cult of Mithras could quickly turn into a secret society that was prepared to take an emperor out. I mean, do we have evidence of this? Uh, no. You know what? Our tinfoil hats are now pulled firmly down over our ears. 
But we know that the worship of Mithras was about worshiping and swearing an oath to a god of justice. So it's pretty easy to extrapolate that if one side of the cult didn't hold up their end of the bargain, there would be consequences. Part of Nero's legend is that he was inducted into the cult of Mithras, but that it didn't take. This is something that I think Cassius Dio says and other historians have implied, and it's just kind of given as a throwaway line. It's literally one throwaway line somewhere in a source. Right. Nero was inducted into the cult of Mithras, but it didn't take. And there's not really any information on what it didn't take meant. But what we personally suspect with our tinfoil hats on is that what this means is that Nero was just an absolute shit emperor. He was so bad that even his own troops, including his Praetorian guard, who were sworn to him as to Mithras, had to turn on him because he was just that bad. That's what it means when you are inducted into the cult of Mithras as an emperor and it doesn't take. So how was Mithraism spread? Hmm? Let's find out. As we've said, the earliest Roman adopter of Mithraism that we know of was the emperor Nero, who was inducted in 63 AD. From there, Mithraism spread throughout the Roman Empire in two different ways. The first, and probably the most influential way, was through the soldiers who served on every Roman front in the empire. The cult of Mithras was strictly hierarchical. Loyalty to the Brotherhood of the Initiated was also crucial. And this made the cult very well aligned with the culture of discipline, brotherhood, and strict hierarchy already present in the Roman army. If ever there was a mystery cult made for the Roman army, this was it. According to Hyongsu Park in his article, Mithraism in the Roman Empire, soldiers and officers were often promoted and moved to new places throughout the empire, especially the borders, which tended to be the most unstable places. This meant that many of the Mithraic temples and artifacts we find today are located along the lines of the empire's borders. From the 1st to the 3rd centuries AD, the worship of Mithras spread across the Roman Empire carried on the backs of Roman soldiers. We find Mithraea, which is what temples to Mithras are called. Plural. Yeah, this is the plural. It, I think the singular is a Mithraeum, is that right? Yes, exactly. So we find Mithraea in Syria, North Africa, Romania, and Northern Britain. There was even a Mithraeum at Hadrian's Wall. And do you know what? Thinking about this, Jenny, it makes total sense to me that the soldiers on these really dangerous fronts would need to be inducted quite quickly into like the worship of Mithras because you really need to build those secret, strong bonds amongst your sort of officers and infantry to make sure that everyone is loyal. Yeah, it also makes sense because a lot of these guys on these fronts would have been auxiliaries. I mean, that's certainly true at Hadrian's Wall. They they put the auxiliary troops in the most dangerous and unstable places, and they would be like um, troops from other areas of the empire that were not inducted into the Roman army proper, who were kind of, they could fight under their own rules and under their own tribal chieftains, but under the Roman army's orders, and they were often used sort of as ancient world cannon fodder. I mean, there weren't any cannons back then, but you get what I mean. Like, they were given the worst, shittiest assignments for the least pay. Yeah, they were the expendables, which is awful, but that's how they treated them. Very true. These would be really diverse people who maybe until right now were enemies of the Roman army and who had their own gods and their own culture, and they would have to be brought into this one very overarching culture very fast. And inducting them into the cult of Mithras might be one way among many to do that. But soldiers weren't the only people in ancient Rome who were spreading the worship of Mithras around. Merchants and pirates also played a key role in importing Mithraism. Plutarch tells us this about the religious habits of Cilician pirates. 
at the southern coast of Turkey. Cilicia Empire, it's literally like the glue that keeps the Roman Empire together, I think. I think you're really right on that. I mean, (laughs) in a very dark way. (laughs) Yeah, they just got up to so much shit. They're invested in so many different areas of like the Roman culture and the fabric of like how the empire actually worked. So here's what Plutarch tells us that the Cilician pirates were getting up to on the southern coast of Turkey. Quote, They themselves offered strange sacrifices of their own at Olympus and Lycia, where they celebrated secret rites or mysteries, among which were those of Mithras. These Mithraic rites, first celebrated by pirates, are still celebrated today in Plutarch's time, according to Plutarch, who is definitely high all the time. And who has some great family stories about Cleopatra and Mark Antony. You should totally listen to those episodes. So, the army spread the worship of Mithras to all the far-flung fortresses and borders of the empire, while the Cilician pirates spread the worship of Mithras all across the Mediterranean. Eventually, it spread to merchants and traders. And actually, you know, this makes real sense, Jen. We were talking about this in the rehearsal. I remember saying, you know, why would pirates want to worship Mithras? Because pirates are shady characters, and why would they want to do that? But you brought up this really good point when we were talking about this, about how the pirates also have to do, they don't just steal things from people, they also have to persuade other people to buy the things that they stole, which means they have to come off as trustworthy to those people. They have to be able to do normal commerce as well as piracy. There has to be some way that they can tell you that their word is actually good and they're not going to pirate on you. So having this communal god of commerce and god of trade and contracts and justice, I mean, it makes total sense to me. Yeah, so it makes sense that the Cilician pirates would swear to Mithras when doing business with traders and merchants who are on the up and up because they'd have to go to extra lengths to persuade those guys that they could be trusted. So the religion of Mithras was a religion of emperors. Commodus, Septimius Severus, and Caracalla were all enthusiastic fans. But the worship of Mithras wasn't confined to the upper classes. The cult spread throughout all ranks of the Roman army. Officials in the emperor's household, imperial slaves, and imperial freedmen were all known to be members. Often, people inducted into the cult of Mithras were either in the military or the emperor's household, where even imperial slaves and freedmen could rise to be extremely influential. In short, these were people who were ambitious, and they knew which god was going to fast-track their career. In other words... The worship of Mithras was kind of the ultimate boys' club. Because it was a boys' club, let's be clear. Yeah, there were no women allowed in the cult of Mithras. So again, this does not line up with Christianity in any way, shape, or form. Or Dionysus, my favorite. But anyway, the secret boys' club was made up of men who were committed to their emperor, who knew where their bread was buttered, who did each other favors and looked out for each other in the cruel ancient world and he used the cult and the connections they formed in it to work their way into power. So how was Mithras worshipped? So rule number one, don't talk about Mithras. Definitely. Rule number two, drink the emperor's pee. Obviously. Rule number three, you must have a dong to enter. Almost goes without saying, but we said it. So the cult of Mithras was extremely secretive. Everything we know about it is conjectural because its members deliberately didn't write things down and didn't want their secrets getting out. So with all that in mind, here's what we know or what we can guess, assume. What we've pieced together from obscure drawings on the walls of the Mithraea. Yeah. So the cult of Mithras was, as we keep pounding in, it's the last time hopefully we say it to you, very, very hierarchical. Only men were allowed in, and most took their social status with them when they entered the cult. So what exactly does that mean? Well, in this cult, 
you pretty much were stuck still playing out the rigid class system of the Roman Empire. Your role in life as a soldier, a merchant, a senator, a freedman determined your rank when you were inducted into this religion. This is in direct opposition to the worship of gods like Dionysus, everyone gets a seat at the orgies, or Christianity, give me your poor or your weary. Those are the taglines of these two respective religions. Mithras was all about maintaining and enforcing social hierarchies, not giving people an escape from them. He was also about the pure sausage energy. Running- <laughs> Who wrote this episode? I am so incredibly proud of that line. <laughs> Running the world behind the scenes in a super secret way and hanging on to power. Or so we think. We don't exactly know this for sure because the cult of Mithras was a mystery cult, which means it was mysterious. And even to this day, its practice is not really understood. We've talked about that a lot. A lot of our understanding of the cult, again, comes from interpreting the artwork found in the Mithraea the secret underground meeting rooms for the worship of Mithras. The artwork on the walls of these cramped and tomb-like rooms tells the story of Mithras and gives us some details as to how the god was worshipped. And now we're going to get into the details of that. So how can you tell that the creepy underground room that you found is a Mithraeum or not a tomb or your standard ancient world murder hole? (laughs) First, we have to start with what you'd find on the walls. You can tell you're in a Mithraeum because of the central artwork. In most Mithraea, you will find a scene of the god Mithras slaying a bull. There are about 700 examples of this bull-killing scene amongst the remains of the Mithraea. Usually, it's a white bull, but sometimes you can't see the color of the bull. Because it's really, really old. It's old. It's really old. So how do you know it's the god Mithras? Well, he's always dressed the same. He likes to keep it classy in one outfit. He's only got one outfit, you guys. So he's a young, usually bearded guy wearing a Phrygian cap. Phrygian caps sort of look like Smurf hats with sort of a floppy, pointy part on top, almost like a mushroom. Kind of like a deformed mushroom. Yeah, like a, like a mushroom that's kind of falling over. Yeah, like the pointy bit is pointing forward. It's a Smurf hat. I think sometimes the Phrygian cap has a pointy bit that does point straight up. Yeah. So these hats were usually red, and this is true for the one that Mithras wears. Sometimes Mithras's cap has white stars on it, which sets it apart from a normal Phrygian cap. So you've got this young bearded guy in the same outfit he always wears, red Smurf hat, maybe with stars on it if he's feeling like really flash, and he's holding on to the horns of a white bull about to slay the mighty beast. Then you're looking at Mithras. But as he's preparing to sacrifice the bull, Mithras is looking away. He can't quite meet the bull's eyes. The part about Mithras not being able to meet the bull's eyes, I think in the mythology that people have pieced together, there's this thought that he has this order to kill this bull, but he's like sad about it, right? Yeah. So, I mean, this is evidence potentially that Mithras was originally a god who originated from India because bulls and cows are definitely sacred in, um, is it Hindu religion? I think it's Hindu religion. This detail could be telling us that Mithras's origins are from India. And that's why he's looking away and he's unhappy about being asked to sacrifice this animal that's super holy. Because we know the Romans and the Greeks, they, yes, bulls were incredibly important. And we see like the Cretan bull pop up all throughout mythology, but they had no problem sacrificing bulls. Yeah, I would say that sometimes they did consider bulls to be sacred, but that sacrificing the bulls to the gods was part of their sacredness. So you'd have like the pure white sacred bull and that was the one that would get sacrificed to the god. And I don't think they felt bad about it. 
No, I think they felt like that's the point of this bull is to be sacrificed to our god as a way of worship. Whereas what we're seeing here is we're extrapolating that Mithras is feeling remorse about this because if the bull itself is a sacred animal, then slaughtering it is it's a big ask. Yeah, so he can't quite meet the bull's eyes. And that's a really interesting facet of this iconography. This scene is essential to the worship of Mithras. We see it repeated over and over again in Mithraea from Syria to northern Britain. This moment, this sacrifice, is the thing that makes Mithras a supreme god of the cosmos. And what this is all supposed to signify is so wild that we're just going to read this quote from Britannica.com because it's a really wild quote. Quote, (laughs) The creation of the world is the central episode of Mithraic mythology. According to the myths, the sun god sent his messenger, the raven, to Mithra and ordered him to sacrifice the bull. Mithra executed the order reluctantly. In many reliefs, he is seen turning aside his face in sorrow. But at the very moment of the death of the bull, a great miracle happened. The white bull was metamorphosed into the moon. The cloak of Mithra was transformed into the vault of the sky with the shining planets and fixed stars. From the tail of the bull and from his blood sprang the first years of grain and the grape. And from the genitals of the animal ran the holy seed, which was received in a mixing bowl. Keep going. Every creature on earth was shaped with an admixture of the holy seed. (laughs) One Mithraic hymn begins, quote within the quote, Thou hast redeemed us too by shedding the eternal blood. The plants and the trees were created. Day and night began to alternate. The moon started her monthly cycle. The seasons took up their round dance through the year, and thus time was created. But awakened by the sudden, this is still happening, this quote. Oh, it's still happening. It's still happening to you. (laughs) It is. I have no say. But awakened by the sudden light, the creatures of the dark emerged from the earth. A serpent licked the bull's blood. A scorpion tried to suck the holy seed from the jet. What am I reading? Okay, now the scorpion is now giving the bull a blowjob. He's got to get the juices out. So a scorpion tried to suck the holy seed from the genitals. On the reliefs, a lion is often also seen. With the bull's death and the creation of the world, the struggle between good and evil began. Thus is the condition of human life. The raven symbolizes air, the lion fire, the serpent earth, and the mixing bowl, water. So the four elements, air, fire, earth, and water, came into being, and from them all things were created. After the sacrifice, Mithra and the sun god banqueted together, ate bread and meat, and drank wine. Then Mithra mounted the chariot of the sun god and drove with him across the ocean, through the air, to the end of the world. Okay, so, Jenny, let's just break all the wildness that you just read down. Can we please? I didn't even know that the scorpion had the correct mouth parts to give a blowjob. I feel like a lot just happened to you right now. (laughs) I think I need to take a shower. (laughs) So according to the mythology, the sun god ordered Mithras to slay this beautiful white bull, which Mithras does reluctantly. And this act essentially creates the sort of entire world we're living in right now. Although what, what was it before? I don't know. Where was Mithras standing before this bull died? I know. So the moon comes into existence. The seasons start going and the days start running into night and Mithras and the sun god decide to just chill and hang out by the dead bull and in some of the sources they say that Mithras and the sun god also eat the genitals and banquet on the dead bull. There's a scorpion doing really dirty things to that bull. (laughs) There is a filthy scorpion that's like I want some of those holy juices. The scorpion and the bull corpse need to get a room. (laughs) 
I mean, I'm not going to shame the scorpion. Maybe I am. Maybe a little bit. <laughs> that dead bull definitely can't give consent. <laughs> I question the scorpion here. I'm a little uncomfortable. <laughs> Moving on. Um, but this whole feasting on the genitals is all up for debate. <laughs> the evidence of all this is very much open to interpretation and mostly comes from the artwork on the walls of the Mithraea, which is difficult to interpret. You know, as we said, imagine going into like a Christian church and just trying to figure out the religion of Christianity by the things you see on the walls and on the windows. So another thing to note is that images of Mithras tend to have a sun-shaped halo behind his head signifying that he is connected to the sun god. In later mythologies, sometimes Mithras and the sun god Sol become conflated, which is super confusing. When people are talking about Sol as a sun god, they are talking about a very different entity from Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun, who is usually related to Mithras, but not always. I mean, all of this is to say that this broke our brain, so if it's breaking yours too, it's okay. So here's another similarity to the Christian religion. The halos that appear over the heads of saints and other important people in Christianity look an awful lot like the Mithras sun halo. One particularly interesting theory is that Christianity adopted the halo symbol to appeal to Mithras worshippers and associate their religion with the more established and powerful religion of Mithras. In effect, this was a Mithras dog whistle. That's one theory. That's one theory. So this central scene of Mithras slaying a bull is one way you can identify a Mithraeum. Another set of Mithras imagery revolves around how he was born. Again, like Jesus, Mithras was said to have had a virgin birth. Mithras was born from a rock holding a torch and a knife under a sacred tree and next to a sacred stream. The artwork shows him bursting forth from the rock, fully grown, wearing his signature Phrygian cap. That is, I guess, a virgin birth? I don't know how the rock got pregnant with a god, but... Does the rock have a uterus? I mean, every time I say The Rock, I just think of Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I'm like, dear Dwayne The Rock Johnson, tell me about Mithras. Is he living inside you? <laughs> That's a question. Is he bursting forth from Dwayne The Rock Johnson or is it an actual rock? Inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> the sources don't say. It's a mysterious cult of mystery. Jenny, how else do you know you're in a Mithraeum? Well, you're underground. That's a big tell right there. That's a big uh, tip off. And according to the scholarly website, Tertullian.org, you can tell the Mithraeum by its architecture. Quote, the architecture of the temple of Mithras is very distinctive. Porphyry, quoting from the lost handbook of Eubolius, states that Mithras was worshipped in a rock cave. The Mithraeum reproduces this cave in which Mithras killed the bull. The format of the room involved a central aisle with a raised podium on either side. So let's just recap. Here's how you know that the creepy hole you're in is a Mithraeum and not just your standard strangle hole from the ancient world. Number one, you're underground in a room with a central aisle flanked by two raised podiums. Number two, containing the bull slaying scene. And number three, containing the virgin birth scene. Congratulations, you're in a Mithraeum. So that's how historians and archaeologists have been able to identify Mithraea across the Roman Empire. And these small underground chambers let us understand so much about how Mithras was worshipped. So we've said before that the cult of Mithras was extremely hierarchical. We don't know exactly how this worked, 
but we have some evidence that suggests an initiation rite and how the orders or different levels of the cult work. So we do have some inkling of how this worked. And we get this information from a series of five frescoes found in the wall of a Mithraeum in Capua that dates from the beginning of the hundreds AD and some corroborating writings from Christian writers who, remember, were outsiders. So take with a grain of salt, but they do kind of corroborate and describe what's going on on these walls. So they're worth including. So... These frescoes that we're talking about in this Mithraeum in Capua that dates from the beginning of the 100s AD, they're damaged and they're not that easy to interpret, but historians believe that they do depict an ancient Mithraic initiation ritual. In the first scene, an initiate is blindfolded and being led or guided somewhere by a second figure, someone referred to on the Tertullian website as an assistant mystagogue, which I love because like, okay, number one, what's a mystagogue? It's a wizard. It's a priest. It's a wizard. It's a wizard priest. It's a wizard priest. And is it the assistant mystagogue or the assistant to the mystagogue? It really depends. <laughs> well, we don't know that much about, <laughs> about the assistant mystagogue slash assistant to the mystagogue and, and what their job was. But <laughs> I'm very intrigued. <laughs> I'm just going to refer to them all as the assistant to the assistant mystagogue. See, that's a real demotion. <laughs> the assistant to the assistant mystagogue. <laughs> so anyway, in this first scene, there's an initiated blindfolded and being led or guided somewhere by a second figure, the assistant to the mystagogue or the assistant mystagogue. In the second scene, the initiate is still blindfolded, kneeling with his hands tied behind him. The mystagogue, his guide. The assistant mystagogue. The assistant to the mystagogue. <laughs> the assistant to the mystagogue, Dwight Schrute, is standing beside the initiate with one hand on his shoulder. And he seems to be holding the initiant down or restraining him. And a third figure, caped and wearing a Phrygian cap, seems to be extending a stick-like object, maybe a staff or sword, towards him. So I don't know because it's not really said, but I'm assuming that the capped and caped figure with the stick-like object, that is the, in fact, the mystagogue. Well, it could also be the mages. He's the head of the cult. Right? It could be the daddy. We're getting to that. <laughs> There's something of an explanation of this scene in the writings of Ambrosiaster, a Christian author who wrote a commentary on the epistles of St. Paul in the 300s AD. Ambrosiaster tells us that the initiate's hands were bound behind his back with chicken's guts and were then cut by a man who calls himself his liberator. In the third scene, the initiate is shown still kneeling but no longer blindfolded with the sword or staff lying near him. The assistant to the mystagogue is... The assistant mystagogue. No, it's got to be the mystagogue here. The mystagogue is placing a crown on his head, indicating that he has passed the first test. It's a little unclear whether it's the mystagogue or the assistant mystagogue or the assistant to the mystagogue doing things at, at various points. Just imagine Dwight Schrute every single time just wearing a different hat. That's probably pretty accurate. <laughs> it probably is. Like one hat means one thing, one hat means another, but it's all Dwight. I feel like Dwight Schrute was really made for the cult of Mithras. I feel like he's still in the cult of Mithras, in the backwoods of Scranton. <laughs> he's the only person in it, and he plays all the roles. So there's a description of this in Tertullian's writing. And this Tertullian that we're talking about was not the website. The website is named after this person. So Tertullian was another early Christian writer who lived between 155 and 200 AD. He has a passage comparing the crown of Christ to the crown of Mithras. And it's a little bit hard to parse here. But in the midst of making this comparison, he describes a rite where, quote, any soldier of Mithra who, when he is enrolled in the cavern, the camp, in very truth of darkness, 
when the crown is offered him, a sword being placed between him and it, as if in mimicry of martyrdom, and then fitted upon his head, is taught to put it aside from his head, saying that Mithra is his crown. This sounds like sort of a test here, like what you're supposed to do when the assistant to the mystagogue. Uh, the, the assistant mystagogue, Jenny, come on. Right, so when Dwight Schrute places the crown on his head, what you're supposed to do as the initiate is say, no, I shan't, I shan't, no, Mithra is my crown. I have to say in this instance, I feel like Tertullian might have some like sour grapes here because like he's got this whole thing about how it's like a mimicry of martyrdom. But the reality is like, if you were joining this club, this secret club and saying like, no, no, Mithra is my crown, Mithras is my crown. That's kind of what you're supposed to do in Christianity. Like Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Like he's above all other things like riches and things like that. Like you can see like he's kind of like. Mm, that's kind of our thing, Mithras. There is a tradition of Christians accusing Mithraic worshippers of plagiarizing their rituals, which we're going to get into a little bit more. I think you're picking up what the ancient writers are putting down there, Jen. I try. <laughs> so that's the third. So that's the third panel. In the fourth panel, the initiate is still kneeling. The mystagogue. The assistant mystagogue. The assistant to the mystagogue. Is standing, by, <laughs> is standing behind him with his hands on the initiate's shoulders and a foot on his calves. He seems to be physically holding the man down. So that's the fourth panel. Such a thing Dwight would do. Yeah, in the fifth, the initiate is shown lying prostrate on the ground, and some historians have interpreted this as a kind of symbolic execution or as sort of a test of valor. There may have been other stages of initiation after this one, and I hope so, because I hope it doesn't wind up where you're dead. St. Jerome says that there were seven stages of initiation. There may have also been a ritual meal to go along with each stage. Seven is an important ritual number in the cult of Mithras and may have had some kind of astronomical connection as well. Oh yeah, it's also an important number in Christianity. Do you think maybe the Christians plagiarized Mithras and then accused Mithras of plagiarizing? I feel like they probably had just things that like inadvertently were kind of similar and then they just kind of maybe got into a pissing contest. I think it probably went both ways, to be honest with you. Maybe because they were both kind of coming up at the same time. Like the religion of Mithras was a lot older, but they were both becoming prominent in this one culture at the same time. Yeah. Some scholars also believe that there were seven grades or levels of initiation into the cult of Mithras. In a different Mithraeum, this one in Austria, which again dates from the 100s AD, there is a mosaic depicting the seven levels of initiation with three ritual objects associated with each level. In a different Mithraeum, this is a third one, in Rome, the same seven levels appear again, each one associated with a planetary god, which is why some historians think that there is a an astronomical connection. Yeah, they think there's kind of a zodiac connection to it, which is super cool. And it's a giant rabbit hole that I literally went down for a week and then was like, I can't, this is, I can't understand this enough to explain it to you. We need to just put this to the side. But hold up, I'm going to explain it to you, Jen. <laughs> You're going to explain it in the way in which it makes the most sense, not the deep rabbit hole I landed in. This is the uh, first grade level understanding of the seven levels of Mithras. So the seven levels in the cult of Mithras were associated as follows in order of hierarchical importance with their associated planetary god slash planet slash god. So the Korax, or the raven, was associated with Mercury, and that was the lowest level. The Nymphus, or Bridegroom, was associated with Venus. The Miles, the soldier, was associated with Mars. The Lion, associated with Jupiter. The Persian, associated with the Moon. The Heliodromus, or Sunrunner, was associated with the Sun. And the top level, the seventh level, the Pater, the Father, 
was associated with Saturn. The daddy. The daddy. (laughs) (laughs) And he was associated with Daddy Saturn. Daddy Saturn. It was probably last week you heard an episode about him eating his babies and Ben Saturnalia. That's who we're talking about. That's the kind of daddy we're talking about here. The kind that eats his babies. (laughs) This is a real family-friendly Christmas episode. I am having the warm feels. Ding dong merrily on high. (laughs) We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry (laughs) Mythmas. We literally, for the life of us, cannot sing the same thing at the same time. We can sing at the same time when we do it, like, accidentally, but when we try to do it, we cannot do it. Merry Mythmas, you guys. Merry Mythmas. (laughs) There may have been levels of initiation within each level, making the levels far more numerous than this, because there would have been levels within levels, Jen. Layers within layers within layers. Millions of levels within each level. Hats upon hats upon hats. Because Mithras is an enigma wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in bacon. (laughs) (laughs) So according to some sources... The initiation process ended with a handshake with the pater, the Danny, the highest-ranking member of the cult. This echoed how Mithras shook hands with Sol. Initiates in the cult of Mithras were referred to as men united by the handshake. This phrase has been found in inscriptions referring to Mithraic initiates. There are lots of misconceptions about how Mithras was worshipped. One extremely common one was that the rites involved sacrificing a bull and having a ritual feast every time they met. Possibly the worshippers feasted on the bull. Maybe the scorpion had to get a room. Or maybe they had like another separate feast we don't know. But is there a separate room for the scorpion? Um, There would have been, yes. Yes, the scorpion had its own suckle room. (laughs) (laughs) Going all the way back to early Christianity, people have believed that the Mithraic initiation process involved a ceremonial meal. There might have been multiple meals associated with different phases of initiation, like sometimes you got the good feast, sometimes you got the bad feast, depending on what level you were at. (laughs) If you're up at the daddy level, you get to drink the emperor's pee. We're getting there, Jenny. So the writer Justin Martyr, an early Christian author from the 100s AD, goes so far as to accuse the, quote, wicked devil Mithraeus of plagiarizing the communion rites of Jesus' Last Supper. But the architecture of Mithraea makes both of these things unlikely. These rooms were way too small to cook anything in. They didn't have hearths or kitchens. They were also too tiny to ritually slaughter a large animal like a bull. They had no drainage. So if you did slaughter an animal in like the feasting room of a Mithraea, the blood would just congeal and get really gross. Like they tended to build Mithraea near streams, but it wouldn't be in this like weird one rock room. Yeah, maybe they did stuff outside by the stream and then took it inside. I think that's the guess. If they were slaughtering an animal, that would be where they would do it because the room just wasn't, they didn't have a hearth in there. It wasn't big enough. It wasn't made for that. Yeah, and I also imagine that archaeologists could probably find like traces of blood in the stone if that happened, right? I should think so. Depending on how well it was preserved, yeah. So what did these men worshipping Mithras really do? Were they really plagiarizing the Last Supper here? Is that is Justin Martyr right, or is he just being a total asshat? In the book Mushrooms, Myth, and Mithras, the drug cult that civilized Europe, this is the best book, there's an interesting theory put forward. Essentially, the worshippers of Mithras had their own ceremonial supper that involved magic mushrooms, Jen. Well, I mean, it's got mushrooms in the title. What did you think was going to happen? 
So the book builds a case for why hallucinogenic mushrooms, which grew naturally in high altitudes in Spain and France, and which may have been used in religious rituals going all the way back to prehistoric times, might have played a part in the worship of Mithras. Mithras was a god who traveled between the cosmic plane and our world. He was always fighting a battle against evil and darkness, and the men who worshipped him were also inducted into this battle. And the theory states that they were potentially taking some sort of mind-altering drug that allowed them to experience this battle on a cosmic level. So this sounds like really, really weird, right, Jenny? Like It does sound a little out there, yeah. It does, but I want to like think back to early Christianity. I, I mean, I grew up Catholic, and there's a point in the Catholic Mass where the priest brings out the body of Christ, which is like a wafer bread, and he brings out some wine, and that's supposed to be the blood of Christ, and it's supposed to be symbolic of the Last Supper. Well, there's literally been wars fought over this because Catholics believe that when the priest is blessing this body and blood, it's transubstantiating. It's going beyond being this bit of, of bread and bit of wine into being the actual blood the wine is the blood and the and the carbs are, are the body that you then eat and take into yourself. You know, the difference between sort of like the Catholic religion and maybe like Methodists or Protestants is they might still have the communion ceremony, but the feeling is that the body and, and blood part of the mass is actually ceremonial. Whereas the Catholics believe that that is actually happening. You have a moment of magic happening here. They believe it's literal. Is that right? They believe it's literal. Yes. Now, we assume that like early Christianity didn't have any drugs in it. But like we think that everyone who's like experiencing the religion is experiencing it how we're experiencing it. Like it's always been the same unbroken line. What I'm saying is that in early Christianity, it would not be the same experience that we're having now. Like the wine they were drinking would have been from wherever they could source it. And the people who were getting the wine and the bread, they weren't like me going out my Sunday best. They were poor people who maybe hadn't eaten in a few days. I feel like what's interesting about this is that, and, and I might be the wrong person to talk about this because I do not have a Catholic background and Jen does, but my sense of things is that what you're talking about is a really transformative experience that people would have really felt profoundly. And I'm not saying people today don't feel that profoundly when they go through that ritual. No, I, I think people today who are in the faith do feel a profound moment when they have that experience. But I also completely agree with you. What we're talking about here in early Christianity or in modern Christianity is when you are imbibing of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, you're having a transformative moment, right? A transformative moment. And we have looked at other cults active in this time that there is a real strong case to be made that they were using hallucinogenic substances other than wine or in addition to wine and other alcohols to create a really transformative feeling. And Dionysus was absolutely one of those. Adar Goddess, which we've done a Patreon episode on, was definitely one of those. We haven't gotten to it yet, but next season we're going to talk a lot more about these sort of fringe religious areas of the Roman Empire and what they were like. And I think that there's a real case to be made, which I'm really looking forward to digging into further for hallucinogenic substances to be used in a lot of different religious, you know, ceremonies and rituals. I think there's absolutely a case to be made for that in Mithras. And I think it's really intriguing to think that maybe that was a part of early Christian rituals as well. I'm not disagreeing with that. I mean, don't fight us on social media. We're not going to fight about this. We're just positing something 
that I'm sure is out there already in scholarship. Like it's a possibility that again, just based on the religions that were happening at the time, this might have been something that some areas of the religion also experienced. Yeah, and even if they didn't, they were operating in an environment where a lot of other cults were, and they were clearly taking signals from those other cults. So the language that they used for their rituals may have been influenced by cults that were using these hallucinogenic drugs. So even if they weren't using them, it might have been influenced secondhand from other cults that were using them. I think it's really important to remember, you know, early Christianity really sort of drew on people who were on the fringes of society, who were poor, who were struggling. And some of the experiences that you have when you find this community of people who are like-minded, who are sharing, those are very transformative. And this communal meal where everyone gets a piece, you know, everyone gets some bread, everyone gets some wine. Whether or not you believed it was transformed or not, the transformation sort of is around this community you've built for yourself that's helping and supporting. Like, I can see how these like two last suppers that the myth that the Mithraim and the Mithraia and sort of Christianity had. I can see why the two of them sort of like were annoyed at each other. It's like you took my thing, but you took my thing. Yeah, but I can also see how powerful a communal religious supper like this would be in a as a as a binding event for these people. Absolutely. This is a kind of out there theory, and we're not necessarily saying that we agree with it. Our tinfoil Mithras Smurf hats firmly on right now. They are on. Firmly on. Pulled over our heads. We cannot even see out of our eyes. But here's the thing, Jenny. This theory about magic mushrooms and the worship of Mithras, it's not as bizarre as you might think. There's an actual history of elite warriors in the ancient world taking performance-enhancing mushrooms. I'm not surprised at all. Cetesius, who was a Greek physician living at the court of Artaxerxes in Persia, witnessed the king dance and drink himself into a right state while he was worshipping Mithras. This was a ritual intoxication that was reserved for the king alone, and the king ate a special mushroom, which was said to induce ecstasy. So the king got a full dose of this ecstasy. And then his followers partook in the ecstasy by drinking the king's urine. So it's possible that the cult of Mithras might have involved urine drinking and magic mushrooms. Sign me up. (laughs) So according to Mushrooms, Myth, and Mithras, this actually would have been a stronger dose than the initial one, as the chemicals in the mushroom would have been concentrated in the urine. Is this actually true? We have no idea. And I'm not about to go out and find this out for myself. I'm not going to find out for myself firsthand. It's fine. I will live with not knowing. There's also an interesting link between Mithras and poisons, which may have been linked to certain pharmaceuticals being part of Mithric ritual. As so many types of drugs in the ancient world were simultaneously hallucinogens, medicines, and poisons, depending on the dose and how they were prepared. We don't know much about this, but we do know that Mithridates of Pontus took his name from the god Mithras. We also know that Mithridates of Pontus was an expert in poisons. Did this come from his knowledge of Mithraism? Were the two linked? Was it a coincidence? We think not. We think not. (laughs) So does Mithras live on, Jen? Or is the cult of Mithras dead? It is still here. There are Mithras dog whistles all over the place. Let's talk about the Mithras dog whistles that you may encounter in real life. So 
There are a few intriguing places where Mithras may have come down to us today, although in a changed form, and the first is the Freemasons. There are a few distinct similarities between Freemasonry and Mithras. For example, both are extremely secretive cults or secret societies. Both are a sausage fest, no girls allowed. Both are strongly hierarchical with different stages or levels. The rites of initiation also may have some superficial similarities. We don't know a lot about rites of initiation with Freemasonry. At least I personally do not. We didn't do a giant deep dive. But both involve blindfolding the initiate. Both involve secret oaths and a secret handshake. Both are associated with judgment. Apparently a lot of judges are Masons, especially in the UK. But perhaps the most interesting and very telling similarity to me is the connection to power. The cult of Mithras was the cult of emperors. It was the cult of people associated with emperors, the ambitious people on the emperor's payroll. At a certain point in history, it was the cult of power. Freemasonry has a similar association with power and influence. For instance, one in three U.S. presidents was a Freemason. Other famous members include Ben Franklin, Mozart, Mark Twain, Winston Churchill, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, the founder of Turkey, and Silvio di Berlusconi, whose lodge was blackballed for trying to make Italy a totalitarian regime, which seems totally in keeping with Mithraism. The other thing that I know about Mithraism and Freemasons, my husband is like, he's like an information magpie, like where I'm a shiny magpie. I want all the shiny, pretty things. He just collects these little nuggets of trivia. We were walking in our town not too long ago, and we passed a Freemason's Lodge, which literally just looked like a random building that you just assume is like a rec hall or something, you know? Nothing on it, just a very small marker that, I don't know, had like a little Freemason symbol on it. And my husband said, that's a Freemason's Lodge. And I was like, how do you know that? He's like, well, they don't want you to know it, but you can tell by like this little thing that was on it. They're sort of like secret hideouts. Remind me a lot of Mithras's like underground temples where they're trying to be really unassuming and you could walk right by it and not know what it was. Like Mithras's temples were underground. There was other buildings and all kinds of stuff. Like famously, Caracalla had his baths atop of Mithraeum. You were saying that Mithraea were traditionally near streams are running water and I was like well maybe that's where they slaughter the bull but slaughtering a bull like a bull is a giant animal and like slaughtering a bull outside where people could see it would have been a, a pretty big event that people could see would probably attract spectators so I kind of question whether they would have even done it outside if they were going to do it. Well, most of the Mithraea were underground. There was always something above it. So you didn't really know what was going on underneath. So I imagine like they might have been bringing in their own feast. It, it had a front organization, like a laundromat or something. <laughs> well, Caracol's baths. Can you imagine having your mushroom tea and then going upstairs into the baths while tripping on your mushrooms? It'd be amazing. Right? <laughs> anyway, Jenny, I'm going to hit you with my wildest theory to date. Okay, hit me with it, Jen. I'm so ready. So here's my wild theory, Jenny. The Smurfs were actually all in the cult of Mithras. Change my mind. I don't think I'm even capable of changing your mind, Jen. Explain your rationale. Okay. The similarities are striking. Number one, they're all dudes, except for Smurfette, who's kind of there to disrupt the balance. And remember, in the religion of Mithras, they don't need ladies for anything. Literally, Mithras slaughters a bull and makes the world. You don't need ladies. Doesn't Gargamel create Smurfette to cause division amongst the Smurfs? I think he does. He definitely also creates like a brunette Smurf who's like divisive and there's like a ginger Smurf. She's probably evil because she's a redhead. Yeah, she has no soul because she's a redhead. That just goes without saying. <laughs> I mean, I can say that, but you can't because I am a redhead. 
Yeah, but I have no soul just based on what I say. And also I'm an atheist, so I don't think anyone has a soul. I think everyone has souls, including gingers. A soul is not a thing. And moving on. All of the Smurfs wear the same hat, which is a Phrygian cap. They do wear a Phrygian cap. That's absolutely true. The Smurfs and Mithras are associated with some magic mushrooms. I mean, the Smurfs live among the mushrooms. Mithras possibly ate the mushrooms. Coincidence? We think not. We think not. Both the cult of Mithras and the Smurf culture are very hierarchical. And all the Smurfs, much like the levels of the cult of Mithras, have specific roles. There's like artist Smurf and baker Smurf and florist Smurf. La 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 la. Handy Smurf, scaredy Smurf. Look, they've all got roles. There's like a baker, there's a florist, there's a painter, there's... Grouchy Smurf. Grouchy Smurf. I mean, that's a job. Farmer Smurf. Poet Smurf. Brainy Smurf. He's very smart. He does all the smart thinking stuff. There are some Smurflings. Snappy Smurfling. Slouchy Smurfling. They've all got roles in their society that are predetermined based on things that have very little to do with them but are deeply important to their social standing. But I imagine slouchy Smurfling is not going to be as highly ranked as snappy Smurf. There's a real hierarchy in the Smurfs, you guys. I'm not making this up. So the Mithric leader is the Pater. And the leader of the Smurfs, Jenny, ready? What's his name? Papa Smurf, Daddy Smurf. The daddy is the leader in both. <laughs> and and let me give you my final bit of evidence. And if you're all not laughing at this point and just thinking, geez, this is a hot mess, Jen. My final bit of tinfoil Smurf hat evidence is Papa Smurf's hat. What color is it, Jenny? Is it red? It is red. Everyone else wears the white hat of an initiate, but Papa Smurf, he got the red cap. That's right, and Papa Smurf has a beard. He does, and he has a strangely young face for that white beard. That's right, his skincare is on point. His skincare game, it is like mwah, chef's kiss. So what did all of this, this entire episode, have to do with Christmas? Fuck all. Fuck all! Nothing! It had nothing to do with Christmas. We failed. We failed to bring you a Christmas episode. We did sing to you a little bit off-key several times, and I am... Pretty drunk, um, which is on par for a holiday episode. But it's also a 2020 holiday episode where we thought we were going to give you one experience, but instead we gave you a different one. 2020 made you drink the Emperor's pee. It's that kind of year. This is our last episode of the year. We hope that 2021 is kinder to everyone out there. And we hope that this podcast has brought you some joy. And like we said, this is not the holiday episode we sat down to bring you, but it is kind of fun. We just want to wish a Merry Mithras to all and to all a good night. So that's it for this week. We're going to join you in a new year. Praise Dio. Yo Saturnalia. Yo Saturnalia. That that is a better year than this year. Jesus fucking goddamn. In the meantime... Catch us on social at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter or Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook or Instagram. And don't forget that we have new merch. And every time you buy some merch for us and tag us in a photo of you wearing it or using it, it causes our little Grinch hearts to grow like 10 sizes. And also, because we've switched over to a new place that's providing our merch for us, we're making more money, which is great for us. Also, it's cheaper for you. It charges you less to buy the merch, and it gives us more of a cut on what you buy. So it's better for everybody. 
And you can also go and check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash ancient history fangirl. We've got ad-free episodes and extra Patreon-exclusive episodes, fun conversations that we've had with other podcasters a lot of a lot of the time with Liv, um, sometimes with the brilliant Queen's podcast. And we just did a conversation on the Mary Floyd with Mary Catherine Phillips from Myths and Tits. It's all set around this time of year. I believe it's a like a Christmassy New Year's episode. It's a brilliant look at some Welsh folklore. It involves a white spectral horse. Like, go and find it. It's good. So we've got some Patreon members to thank. I've said it before. I've gone full-time freelance, and I've got also some family things going on at the moment that have been impossibly difficult. But our patrons and our listeners have stepped up every single time to help us get through this year. And our patrons are keeping the lights on. They're helping us get more and more to the point where this could be a viable career for both of us. And we are so grateful. To be honest, I didn't know, I'm sure Jen didn't know, if we could keep the podcast going during the pandemic with all of the other things that we had going on and all of the fires we had to keep putting out. We've both had family things. We've both had financial things. Everyone who's contributed to the podcast has contributed to keeping us putting up one more episode and us being able to dedicate the time to keep this podcast going. And we really appreciate it. And we're so glad that you guys care enough about this to help us keep it going. So thank you so much. Jenny, shall we name and praise? Let's name and praise. I'll go first. Clue? C-L-O-U? Clue? Jennifer Saint, who's also a debut novelist. Her debut novel comes out in 2021. And it's on Ariadne and it looks brilliant. Congratulations, Jennifer. I can't wait to read your novel. Patricia Thacker? Erin Max. I know I'm going to mispronounce this. I'm sorry. I think it's Dutch. Bo Gouverts. I'm so sorry. Alyssa Pagnuccio. And we are going to mispronounce everyone's names. We're sorry. We're drunk. Dave Murphy. Azra Lydia. Charlotte Wallace. Detra Robinson. Kristen Bemis. Brittany Playford. Ryan McDonald. Lisa M. Crowell. Raytheon Miranda. Sarah Evans. Cheryl Kincaid. And Folk Engine. Thank you so much for your support, and we will see you in 2021. Bye.